Hello and welcome to Recovery Survey, the podcast where we survey recovering addicts with different backgrounds and different links of clean time and ask them questions about different recovery topics. I'm joined today by a very special guest. His name is Bob G. He is the author of Playing to Lose, the story of a Christian gambler. Welcome to the show, Bob. I want to first start off and thank my friends at Recovery Survey for giving me the opportunity today to talk to them about about my recovery journey. My name is Bob G., and I'm a recovering compulsive gambler. I think some that know me well may argue that I, I might even qualify as a pathological gambler. The date of my last bet is November 10th, 2019. Um, So tomorrow, tomorrow Mother's Day will be my six-month anniversary without a bet. Uh, My gambling career has expanded. I'm pushing on 36 years now that I've crossed my gambling career. I started around 10 years old and never looked back. Uh, Gambling is something I was exposed to and indoctrinated into as a young kid. Gambling was in the home, gambling in the social clubs and bingo parlors, uh, local carnivals, running games, you name it. It's just something that it's something I was uh, raised up into and I grabbed a hold of and I really enjoyed it. And um, it's something that I made a, I don't know, a big part of my life. When I was younger, you know, it started out simple. I was just a little toddler running drinks to the poker table at the home games and I always admired uh, the adults sitting there uh, wagering their, you know, their paychecks on the cut of a deck of cards. And, you know, they would occasionally drop quarters on the floor or dollar bills on the floor on a good day just for, you know, my participation and activity of even being in their presence. Uh, I think they thought it was kind of cool to do it. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. Unfortunately, what they didn't know is I was introducing some of my childhood friends to the bet explaining to them, you know, how games worked and how betting and raising worked. You know, I felt empowered doing that as a kid. Over time, I started gambling in schools. It actually cost me my education. I got pushed through elementary school, ended up going to a high school to repeat a grade, which was eighth grade, and um, a few suspensions. And eventually I signed myself out at 16 on the first day of eligibility. Gambling was keeping me up all night. It was just something that I preferred to do. I had no no real discipline at home. My mother was an alcoholic, had two kids, and was married and divorced by, I'd say, about 19. She was addicted to the drink, and ultimately it stole her life at, at 47 years old. She succumbed to, to addiction, so I I'm not foreign to the idea of what it's like to grow up in a single-parent family surrounded by addiction. Uh, I think we moved from apartment to apartment, I believe, 12 times before I was age 15. And it was at age 15 that I moved out. By 16, signed out of school, met a girl along the way. I was out of school. She was in school, doing a great job, uh, doing what you're supposed to do, came from a different family background and dynamic. But I did what boys do at that age. When you run the streets all night and have no accountability for your actions, I, we had a daughter uh, at 18, had a son by 19, and were married. But my gambling continued regardless of having a family. 
I did what a rebellious young kid would do and, you know, family or not, I ran the streets all night gambling to the point where even trying to get to a child's wrestling match or soccer game, eight o'clock in the morning, I would have to leave an all-nighter at a poker table, go to the game and take power naps in the parking lot in the car between matches. Um, Not proud of what I did, but played a heavy toll in my marriage. You know, it's hard enough having two kids out of school and being married at such a young age, but if you uh, complement that with a impulsive gambler, that led us to uh, to the divorce lawyers, and we didn't pull the trigger on divorce. We uh, went to the lawyers, did what we were supposed to do, and ultimately made a decision to give it one more try before signing the papers and got ourselves into uh, to see a counselor, a marriage counselor, and uh, you know, by my higher power, by God's grace, we uh, salvaged the relationship, and uh, never talked about gambling with the counselor. Didn't tell him that that was the reason we were there largely because I was an absent father. You know, I like to think I was, I like to think I was a good dad when I was there, but I was an unruly wild kid with no real discipline or structure growing up. So for me to be the person you're supposed to be in that fatherly role, it was, it was difficult. Expectations were high. My ability to perform just wasn't there. It wasn't, it hadn't developed. I kind of did whatever I wanted for the entirety of my childhood before we even had kids and got married. When I was 15 years old, I had a drinking problem and got me in trouble with the police. I uh, I got picked up a uh, half dozen times for underage drinking, possession, consumption, distribution. Ended up getting so bad that the uh, local magistrate, the district uh, magistrate, ordered me to into three months of rehab. Uh, I didn't get a vote in that. Even being 15, I had to I had to go into a program for three months by court order. Pretty much every night after I got done AA classes, I was out drinking and partying because discipline is not something I, I wanted. It's not something I would allow into my life. I, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And that was that played a big role in my gambling career because uh, I wouldn't let anybody control me. I wanted to control the narrative. I wanted to make my own decisions. It really didn't matter what the cost was. If I had to make a choice between uh, my wife and gambling, I would have chose gambling back then. The only the only thing I think that I would have said no to is if if it, if I would have lost my kids. I like I'd like to believe even to this day, and they're grown up now. But I like to believe to this day that if the children were to be taken, that I would have stopped. I, I like to believe that, but I have no way to know for sure. As progressive as a gambling addiction is, as insidious as gambling addiction is, I don't know that I would have been able to stop, but I like to think I would. So ultimately, uh, wreck a few cars, drinking got a little bit worse before it got better. Eventually, I walked away from the drinking uh, and just started gambling and put all my energy and focus into the bet. What started out with friends and running drinks to the table turned into uh, running my own game for about five years. I had a call list across several counties of about 400 players. We had paid dealers, massage therapists. You know, we had catered dinners. We had uh, just about everything you could imagine, custom-built tables. We rented properties to host tournaments, armed security guards, and pretty much like little mini casinos, if you will. 
the armed security was because uh, myself and 11 others back uh, in the early 2000s at a home game, uh, six guys wearing ski masks broke in through the side door and held us at gunpoint and took everything we had, even stole some vehicles, um, our license, our money, our cell phones. They held us at gunpoint for, I'd like to say for hours, but in reality it was about 20 minutes and uh, it just seemed like forever. And they even took my wedding ring. So from that day on, we changed venue, location, and hired security. And uh, since my background is in the security industry, um, I was able to consult to the game houses locally on, you know, inward swinging or outward swinging doors, man traps, interlock systems, video. Uh, we did a lot to protect the game. You know, you would think a sane, rational person would say a young father of two kids and husband just got robbed at gunpoint by six armed men, that'd be enough to stop. It wasn't even close to getting me to stop. What I did was I reinforced the game to make it safer, as opposed to removing myself. And that's the nature of the addict. We'll do whatever it takes, and we won't look back. We will adopt and adapt and we'll overcome there's an old saying that if you want to solve world hunger, put four or five gambling addicts in a room and tell them they can't bet until they solve it. By dinner time, we'll have a solution for the world. That's just the nature of how we behave and how we act. So I never really went back to drinking. Uh, my mother still struggled and suffered. She was alive in those years, uh, but eventually she passed from cirrhosis of the liver, which is a result of alcoholism and abuse uh, to the body. Um, I never really got over that. I think in some ways, now that I'm in recovery, looking back, I think it played a big role in pushing me further down that road because when she passed, one of the last things that happened is we had a big fight, and I never had a chance to apologize for that. So my last memory of my mother in a cognitive state of mind, my last memory was an argument about something, something trivial, something that wasn't relevant in the scheme of, of the world or life. So I know that I never really faced that pain that I went through. And I just, anytime I've ever had pain in my life or emotionally, you know, was emotionally challenged, I would just gamble. And if the pain got worse, I, I would gamble more. It's the only thing that made me feel good. It was my escape from reality, escape from life's pressures. There's a saying in a famous song by Halsey, the singer, that's one of the lyrics is, the thing you love the most is your detriment. You know, well, gambling made me feel good, but it was detrimental, so I was conflicted. I could either sit at home and face life, face life on life's terms, or I could hide all of that under the guise of, of gambling. And, you know, for me, it wasn't about, it wasn't about winning. Uh, it was in the beginning. I, I was a winning player. I played in multiple countries. I ran games with hundreds of players. I you know, met famous playing celebrities. I, I've done a lot in my lifetime, uh, despite my addiction and the devastation it provided. I really don't know. I just uh, I had to do it because I, I think in a lot of ways I wasn't emotionally prepared to deal with life. It was just an easy escape for me. And what's ironic is the thing I was escaping to ultimately became my prison. You know, addiction is incredibly isolating. And what I would find out 
decades later is that while addiction is isolating, recovery doesn't have to be. You know, I found out later on that I wasn't alone in my I wasn't alone in my recovery. I wasn't alone in my journey or my pain. There's so many more people out there that are, you know, exactly like me. Some are worse, some not as bad. But for me, I just, I felt like I was in this alone. It was my own prison. It was my own turmoil. I really didn't want anybody else to know what I was doing or what I was going through. I think where things started changing is in 2014, and again, I've been gambling. I'm 46 years old today. But in 2014, after a lot, a lot of decades of gambling, uh, it became a big year for me. I was just financially devastated, financially insolvent. I was defeated spiritually, morally, uh, emotionally. I was, for the first time in my life, starting to have suicidal ideations. And I wasn't happy with where I was. And I was also conflicted spiritually. I ended up signing myself out of a casino in 2014, and it was just one of dozens of casinos I had access to, but I took a first step. I went up to security, and I signed myself out through a self-exclusion program, and I was asked, do you want to do six months to cool off, one year, five years, or life, and I said, give me a year. I'll be better. I'll, you know, like every gambler says, I'll I'll have it under control by then because that's the great illusion. We'll one day later in life control our addiction, which is part of the great lie that we tell ourselves. But I signed myself out of a casino, and I was pretty proud that I did that. And I started seeing a counselor for gambling. I was seeing him every Monday for six months, and unfortunately, I, even though I thought I was ready because I self-excluded and I was so defeated, emotionally and personally and financially, but I was still gambling. I was lying to him. Matter of fact, there were times on Mondays that I wouldn't even show up. I'd have to cancel and I would tell him I have a meeting at work. I would lie to him and tell him that uh, something came up, my kid's sick. In reality, I had lost so much the weekend prior to the Monday that I couldn't afford to pay him his fee. But in my own mind, hey, look, I took a few steps. I signed out of a casino I'm not allowed to go back to for a year that's close to my house. Uh, I'm seeing a counselor, even though I don't go all the time. It's a good first step. I then started entering into Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery is a very well-known program where there's some praise and worship elements, and then you break out to some private rooms and you know, a lot like AA, NA, GA, you get to you get to sit there and you know uh, give therapy and listen. Of course, the challenge for me back in 2014 is at that particular location, I was the only compulsive gambler in the room, and I really just didn't think they understood gambling. I understood alcoholism because I grew up with it, but I didn't think they understood it. And maybe it was just me convincing myself because I didn't want to be there. I kind of felt like I had to put a check in the box. So eventually I decided to stop going to therapy. I stopped going to celebrate recovery. And in the midst of the self-exclusion, I just exchanged that for another location. From 2014 to 2019, things got worse. I thought leading up to 2014 was bad. From 2014 to 2019, those next five years were the most difficult years of my life. 
my gambling just grew so out of control. It's almost like I took a step forward and 20 steps back. I made an effort, but yet it just got worse from there. It was a failed attempt. It must not have been my bottom, my absolute rock bottom. I ended up getting sued, not once or twice. I got sued 10 times. Uh, these were all civil suits. Most of them were at the local magistrate level. Many more were at the county court level. And these were by creditors. Um, that's what happens when you're insolvent. But you won't stop. You keep borrowing money you're not able to repay. I got sued 10 times. I still have about six of those suits left today. I ended up having foreclosure attempts on my home uh, where my family lives. We would park the car in the garage because of repossession efforts from the uh, the lender to finance the vehicle. You know, just the idea of parking outside your own home, knowing that your vehicle wouldn't be there in the morning was devastating. Sitting in your house, afraid the doorbell would ring. And if it ever did, just that fear that, that went through your body, you know, which sheriff's department deputy is it today that's going to serve me another lawsuit? Between 2014 and 2019, I had 23 credit cards maxed out. I had, uh, we'll call it, we'll just round it to a dozen loans spread across traditional banks, non-traditional banks, peer-to-peer -peer lending companies. I had predatory loans from those, hey, we'll give you a loan no matter what your credit, as long as you have a job. I was using payday loans for a number of years into my state that I live in, in Pennsylvania, outlawed them as predatory lenders. I started taking loans out from tribal communities in other states. And what I mean by tribal communities is there, there's banks out there and lenders out there that aren't under the rule of traditional banking regulations because they're tribal communities. So I you know, did what a gambler does. I got creative and I found a way to continue my addiction. Uh, I wouldn't let anything stop me. 23 credit cards and a dozen different loans. Some of those interest rates were 389%, which at the time I didn't care as long as they fed me. I needed that dopamine drip that you know the money provided because the action of play is what I desired. Uh, win or lose, I just had to play. Between the house and the lawsuits and the cards, and I, I owed people. I had friends, and um, those numbers aren't relevant because in reality, it doesn't matter if you lost a dollar or a million dollars, it's always going to be relative to your means to uh, borrow and repay. But, you know, I owed people money that if I made a stop that, hey, Bob, I'm going to stop today, take a personal inventory of myself, get into a 12-step program, see a counselor, if I did that today, I'm still going to owe people for three, four, five years down the road, and I would have to deal with that every single day. So the broken record that kept playing over in my mind was I have to play because if I don't play, I can't pay. And I've heard many, many gamblers say that over my lifetime. Well, I can't stop because I owe too much. Well, again, it goes back to the psychosis of a compulsive addict. Well, actually, you can because five years will become four, four will become three. You got to put a stake in the ground at some point. Otherwise, five years will become 10 years. If that wasn't bad enough, it was early 2019 when the IRS decided to come after me. The timing just couldn't be worse. I was already upside down 
and what I owed in debt. Uh, I was all, already up for repossession and foreclosure and being sued and paying lawyers I couldn't afford. Uh, that's when the IRS decided to contact my employer and attach my wages. I didn't get a vote. They took what they wanted and locked me into a compliance repayment pro program for the next three years. And that was on top of what I was already paying them in an agreed-upon repayment program. What was bad in 2014 became worse in 2019. I decided to finally make a stand. I did what I should have done many, many years ago. I joined GA. It was September 10th, 2019. I walked into the door for the first time to a local meeting. I had no idea if I'd know anybody there, if they would be friendly. I didn't know if, you know, my the only thing I thought is, that, you know, this place is going to catch on fire when I walk in the building. They're going to tell me that, hey, these meetings are for sane, rational people who struggle with impulse control disorders. You need, you need, hey, Bob, you need some type of alien-style treatment, or you need an exorcism. I really thought that low of myself, only to find out in that first meeting and then to later support that thought, I wasn't as bad as I thought. I wasn't a bad person trying to be good. I wasn't. I wasn't a bad person trying to be good. I was a sick person trying to get well. And what I found in those meetings, I wasn't alone. That room was filled with people, some worse than me, some equal, some less of an issue, uh, with not as many years of addiction. I found myself surrounded by people that understood me and could relate to me. I wasn't the only one in the room that lost a parent or a loved one to addiction. I wasn't the only one being sued. Some of them had jail time. Some of them... Uh, can't really talk about what others do, but in general, you, you recognize pretty quick in a program like that 12-step Cameras Anonymous program that, you know, you're not in this alone. You also recognize that you're not a bad person. You're a good person trying to get well. So that was really important to me. I made a lot of friends there. Uh, they offered me a lot of support. Now, what I did, of course, is I changed my date several times from September to October, and, and November 10th is the last day of my bet. So I think I changed my bet three or four times in those first couple months until I finally, until it started to finally sink in. I did start seeing a gambling counselor in September. Uh, my state has a program, and a lot of people don't know this. A lot of states now offer free gambling counseling with a licensed therapist for your addiction to help you. Because how could a compulsive gambler in, in our financial situations ever afford it? In a lot of cases, the states are funding that now. So that's what happened in Pennsylvania. I started seeing a counselor every week. I was going to GA two to three days a week at different meetings. I started to talk to my friends and family. I sat down with my boss one-on-one -on -one at work and explained to him, look, here's what I've done. Here, This is me. Accept it or not, I really put myself out there for others to, to see. I thought my best chance at recovery would be to let people in. Fortunately or unfortunately, my career requires me to do a lot of public speaking on stages um, each year. And a lot of the bigger events are in Las Vegas or they're in Atlantic City. So spending three, four, or five days in a month in Las Vegas for my career put me at risk. In 2019, I was going out every couple days or every other weekend. I ultimately signed out of the state of Delaware, the state of Pennsylvania, the state of Maryland, which are the three states around me. 
I did the self-exclusion for five years in each one of those locations. I also went and met with the um, state police, and I did a uh, self-exclusion for Harrah's properties and Caesars casinos worldwide. I had to go back and uh, fill out some paperwork because of my job, and I had to get a special work permit just to even allow me to be inside of one of these resorts or properties for career-related responsibilities. I got a number. I got a phone number and a unique identifying number, and I got a call two days in advance uh, just to even let them know I'm coming. And the first thing I do before checking into a hotel is I got to go see security, give them the number, and get a lecture on you're not allowed on the casino floor. You're allowed to park, go into the hotel, into the auditoriums, in the stage rooms. That's it. So I took a big stand. I, I put a lot of effort and time into this. One of the things I struggled with was, why did I do this to myself? Why did I beat myself up so bad and allow this devastation in my life? And I just couldn't understand it. And the combo book you get in GA talks about, does the why matter? And in the book it says, perhaps, perhaps it matters. But a lot of people found sobriety not ever knowing why. Well, I'm happy for them, but for me, it mattered. I needed to understand why. So on top of GA several times a week, on top of seeing a gambling counselor, I started seeing a therapist. And I really wanted to understand on my recovery journey why, because here's how I looked at it. If I would become solvent once again financially over the years, am I just going to, once I have money again, am I going to default right back to the debt? If I didn't address the underlying issues in my life that led me to the bet, because gambling addiction is a life sentence. There is no cure. There's no magic pill you're going to take. There's no saying or prayer you're going to utter that's going to heal you. It's a life sentence. It cannot be cured, but it can be arrested. Well, arresting, it's where I'm at right now. But I really want to understand the why. So I started seeing a therapist on top of everything else I was doing. And You know, a lot of people I've talked to said, man, you really went all out. And my response to them was, if I even put half as much energy into my recovery as I put into my addiction, I stand a really good chance of getting well, figuring this thing out. Not that I'll ever know exactly why, not that I'll ever be cured in those therapy meetings. We worked a lot on why I was uh, the way I was, and a lot of it stems back to my childhood. It sounds, uh, you know, it sounds like every well-written story. You know, mommy didn't hug me enough as a kid. Uh, Mommy put my diapers on too tight, but it's more than that. Um, There's something that happens to a child who's raised in, uh, in a home with an addict. Not that my mother didn't love me or do the best she could because she did. It was more, for me, it was more, uh, I never got disciplined for anything I did. I set a few fires. I got yelled at. I uh, got a girl pregnant at 17. I got a stern talking to. I get put in court-ordered AA by a judge. You know, you steal a car or two. All it ever was was just you're grounded outside the house until I'm not mad anymore. So I really never understood discipline or accountability. And that followed me through my, you know, through my adulthood where I just felt like I could make my own decisions, do what I want, when I want. If I wanted to have a sleepover with a buddy, 13 or 14 years old, 
uh, I would stay for a week or two weeks. Um, when I said at 15, I'm moving out, she said, uh, okay. I mean, there was really just no checks and balances. I didn't know what accountability and discipline looked like. You know, that played a big role in my life uh, as an adult. So control issues were a big thing for me. I had a lot of fears and phobias, whether it be dark, uh, afraid of heights, claustrophobic, and, and really the common denominator with I'm not in control. I learned in therapy that, you know, when you beat yourself up, do so with a feather. I used to, you know, I mean, I didn't get to the point where I was uh, self-harming and cutting myself, but I was in some subconscious way losing intentionally as a way to punish myself. I would literally, I mean, there's a time already when I pulled into the valet at the uh, casino and within 10 minutes I have two hand pays, I'm up 10 or 20 grand and the car's not even parked yet. And I almost, in some odd subconscious way, I, I leaving with that money just wasn't acceptable to me. I would stay until it was all gone. If I said I'm going to go to the casino and leave by midnight, it'd be 6 a.m. the next morning. I broke every promise to others, every promise I've ever made to myself. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you wrote a book called Plain to Lose, The True Story of a Christian Gambler. What was the inspiration for that book? You know, one night on the couch, I'm laying on the sofa looking at my phone and my wife, I'm reading her some notes that I had been journaling for over the, you know, over the years. And I'm just reading back some of the, some of my wild escapades over my lifetime and my gambling career. And I'm reading them aloud to my wife and she made a, you know, an offhanded comment. God, you have enough notes to write a book. Well, that's where it kind of started in my recovery, I had a conversation with my therapist about that encounter, and she kind of supported that theory of, hey, you might as well. A lot of people should hear your story. Maybe some good can come out of what you've done and what you've experienced. Next thing you know, over a period of um, several months, I, I wrote a 50,000-word book that's out on the market now. It's called Playing to Lose, The True Story of the Christian Gambler. Playing to lose, I gave it that title because that's what I did. I didn't play to win. I wasn't trying to be a ranked poker player. I wasn't trying to win a slot machine jackpot every trip. I played because I had to play, and I played to lose. Even when I won, I lost. So I think the title's fitting for a compulsive pathological gambler. The true story of a Christian gambler, well, that was the subtitle because I am a man of faith. And that's that's been a challenge uh, for me for a number of years. I've always been conflicted because compulsive gambling goes in opposition of everything that is real, everything that's true, everything I believe in in my core. It goes directly against it. You know, I need to be a responsible steward with my money, not throw it out the window and give it to a casino. I need to be tithing and doing charitable work and helping others who are less fortunate. You know, so my gambling career was in direct opposition of my faith. So the book is largely uh, a story, uh, not about my gambling escapades. It's a story, it's an ode to humility and vulnerability and what it's like to grow up where the only thing you really understand is the bet. You know, what it's like to 
grow up and spend 10 or 15 years as a kid doing, you know, in, inside of a social club or a bingo parlor, doing peel tickets, scratch tickets. It's all I knew. And I wanted the reader to understand that, you know, how important it is for kids today that we don't expose them to this kind of activity at an early age. You know, a kid sees an adult doing something and they think it's okay. You know, you might find acceptance. For me, at 12 years old, sitting at a table with adults playing cards, even if it was with my lunch money, to me it was about acceptance. I was sitting with the adults. You know, they were older, they were educated, they, they had careers and businesses. To me, that was them accepting me. And, and I had an equal, maybe not equal outcome, but I had an equal opportunity to take from them and not have what I little I had taken from me. And I just, I got caught up in it as a young kid, and I never looked back. I think the message of the book is a couple things. You know, I want people to know how devastating gambling addiction can be. I want them to know how high, percentage-wise, how high the suicide rate is. I want them to know that gambling is largely state-sponsored. It's acceptable in most societies. It's something that is advertised on billboards, newspapers, on your phone, on advertisements. Uh, you're surrounded by it everywhere you go. You know, even in my own state, you, you don't need to go to a store in Pennsylvania to buy a scratch-off ticket. You can tie your bank account right to the lottery and scratch it virtually on your phone. Uh, you can put your credit card in, in a ticket machine and buy your tickets. I've even seen some gas stations where you can order your lottery at the gas pump instead of, you know, it used to ask you if you want a car wash when you're pumping gas. Now it's asking if you want lottery. I just think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I think that the percentage of individuals seeking recovery, seeking Gamblers Anonymous, seeking help, I think that percentage is going to grow because the overall percentage of gambling availability is growing. So uh, naturally, you'll see a correlation between the two. But my biggest challenge in my 30-plus years of gambling was the conflict I had between uh, the activity of gambling and my faith. Um, I think what's next for me, I think what's next for me in my life is to do, continue doing what I'm doing, uh, spreading the word about um, the devastation of gambling addiction, the origins of addiction what it does to a person's psyche. I think the book's a good way to build awareness. You know, it's interesting because I've been asked many times, why did I write a book? And at first, I think if I'm completely transparent and honest, I looked at it as a way to, look, I have enough stories to write a book, so I might as well, because if I sell some copies, I can make a few bucks and reduce my overall debt. What I found so far is how many people Surprisingly, how many people are sending me messages, emails, notes on social media? Hey, I just read the book. Hey, uh, I bought a second copy for my sister who struggles with a gambling addiction. Hey, uh, I'm a mother and my son has been doing this since college with sports. Thanks so much for what you wrote because I never knew how bad it could get. And we're going to stop playing today because we can, you know, what started is We'd go once a year, turned into once a month, which it had become once a week. So for me, what started as, hey, maybe I can make a few dollars, turn more into maybe the, there's something here. Maybe I will add some value back to others. 
you know, even if it doesn't save one person from abstaining from the bet, it helped me. So, so writing's been, it was incredibly therapeutic. I couldn't be happier with where I'm at right now. Tomorrow's going to be six months without a bet. But if you think about 2014, when I talked about it, you know, we're in 2020, it took me six years to get to six months. Statewide self-exclusion, multiple counselors, multiple GA sessions, writing a book. It took telling people I care about. It took everything I could do to get me to where I'm at. The programs work if you work them. There is help out there. Um, Addiction is incredibly isolating, but people need to understand that recovery doesn't have to be. You're not alone. People do understand. People do care, and you are valuable. And I, I really want people to understand that message. I really want to thank Recovery Survey again just for giving me this platform or stage to an availability and opportunity to have a conversation and um, really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. How can our listeners contact you and where can they find your book? So I am on uh, Facebook. It is spelled out six S I X underscore the number four underscore 60 spelled out Uh, Instagram, same spelling, but it's at six for 60. The book's name is Playing to Lose, The True Story of a Christian Gambler. It's exclusively on Amazon. You can get it in Kindle ebook format, or you can get it in paperback. You can also contact me at bobg at 6for60.com. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. If you'd like to contact Bob, I'll have his contact information in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to Recovery Survey. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving us a rating or a review, and please be sure to tell your friends about us. If you'd like to get in contact with us, we have a brand new website. It's recoverysurvey.com. Until next time, I've been your host, Brett. Thanks for listening.